You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Welcome to the new episode of Tech Tank, where we take very complex technology issues and put them into layperson's language. I'm Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, one of the co-hosts. This is a really interesting podcast that we're about to have, especially since the pandemic has more than 20 billion in down payments on high-speed broadband networks and programs. For many of us, that is truly amazing, given the few decades of millions of people on the wrong side of digital opportunity. When we think about these investments, it becomes really clear Will we do enough this time? With more than 13 to 15 million people disconnected from the internet, and with school-aged children, about 15 to 16 million of them without broadband access or an internet-enabled device, it is about time during this pandemic that we address these issues head on. Secondly, hundreds of thousands of businesses will be closed permanently as a result of the economic consequences of COVID-19. And that's where technology plays a role. How are we going to leverage this huge down payment on America's assets in infrastructure and people to ensure that we're not only using technology to get school-aged children back into the classroom and have a contingency plan in case they cannot be there in person, but we're also leveraging the technologies and ways to get our entire country scheduled for vaccination, whether they live in urban, suburban, or rural America. I'm excited to be joining this conversation by two people who know these issues very well. And this conversation is the second of a three episode series on my Tech New Deal, which is all about centering technology for economic development and revitalization. Today, we're joined by the Honorable Jim Clyburn, Democratic member of the U.S. House of Representatives and the House Majority Whip since 2019. He is also the third-ranking Democrat in the U.S. House. He's been very instrumental in the monies that we're going to talk about today, as well as the legislation. And he is joined by the Honorable Mignon Clyburn, who is the former acting chairwoman and commissioner at the Federal Communications Commission. She's also a distinguished family member of the Majority Whip. By that, I mean his daughter. And I'm happy to have both of them as we talk about what needs to be done to close the digital divide for good. And how do we look at these recent down payments on broadband as a way to have a new deal to accomplish those goals? Welcome to you both and thank you for joining me. Thank you again for the invitation and for the opportunity to address such a complex issue. You know, one of the things you mentioned a a few moments ago is the fact that we have spent billions of dollars on uh, this issue, which affirms that is very complex. And I say complex because if it were simply one thing or one reason or one challenge, if it were just digital literacy, relevance, cost of service, or the uh, presence or lack of infrastructure, then I think we would be well on our way to closing this divide. But not only is this plural by way of complexity, it is layered on top of that multifaceted, multidimensional challenge. And it is a direction, a direct reflection 
of persistent disparities, political choices, dare I say thumbs on this economic scales and choices when it comes to communities, there are people who are actually by way of action or inaction picking winners and losers when it comes to our communities, picking winners and losers when it comes to digital in investments. And what we're seeing with uh, these disparities, with this, these digital canyons and gaps are, are that in full display, particularly when COVID hit and children were sent home and seniors were that were unable to visit their medical uh, professionals uh, in, in real time and in person. So it is multidimensional and it's going to take a multidimensional series of approaches to adequately and intentionally and per persistently address them because we are in a persistent state of disconnect, but I don't know if we are in a persistent state when it comes to addressing uh, these challenges before us. You know, I love the way you frame it, which is this is no longer around a digital divide that's binary. Who has access, who doesn't, who's online, you know, in terms of a, the type of device versus who doesn't have a device. This is about economic survival, right? And part of what you're talking about is we have seen this technology really, you know, dismiss analog society. We're no longer an inline economy. We're an online economy, which I think, you know, every point you've made, Commissioner, is really important. I think it's, in, it's, it's, it, it's upon us as individuals and as leaders to start thinking about how we close these gaps. And, and Nicole, I mean, you know, to, to your point, none of this should be a surprise to us no. because when we see all of the other elements of uh, inequities, why should be we should should we be surprised um, that there is a digital divide that there are, are you know technology canyons? Why should be we be surprised at this when we have all of these other canyons uh, before us? That's right. Now, Congressman, you recently introduced with Senator Klobuchar the Accessible Affordable Internet Act for All, which would be $94 billion investment in urban, rural, and suburban broadband deployment. And, you know, just another point, the doubling of that recently passed emergency broadband benefit, which is a $50 subsidy for families facing broadband service vulnerabilities. What was the impetus for the bill? And, and I, I'm, I'm going to say, I think it might have been a little bit of your daughter, but um, what was the impetus and how has the pandemic heightened your desire to expedite efforts to close the divide? Well, uh, thank you very much for having me uh, and for exploring this subject. I, I've been here for about 10 years now on this broadband business. Of course, Mignon did have a lot to do with my understanding the inequities that existed in this system. And I might... Uh, Recall one of them now, you mentioned how undercounted this might be. If you take uh, the Federal Communications uh, Commission's um, count, you are way undercounted because they go by census tracts. If in one house in a census tract is connected, then they consider the whole census tract as being connected. I live in the South. I was born and raised here in the South. Southern plantations all around this place. And we've got the big house would have would be connected, but all the little houses around it will not be connected, yet they'll be counted as being connected. This is the kind of inequity that's in the system. And many of y'all made me aware uh, of this and a few other things. I, I became very, very conscious of what needed to be done. And I uh, do remember the impact that rural electrification had on rural America. And 
I say that electricity is what brought rural America uh, into the 20th century. It's going to take broadband to bring rural America into the 21st century. I often repeat this little prayer that the co-ops, the rural electric co-ops, when they did their 50th uh, anniversary, they did a tabletop book that they call The Next Greatest Thing. And they took that title from a testimony that was given by a farmer in a rural Tennessee church. We got up one night and said, brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. The greatest thing on earth is to have the love of God uh, in your heart. And the next greatest thing is to have electricity in your house. Well, to me, that it will be the impact of broadband on the 21st century. We cannot have effective healthcare delivery if we don't have broadband accessible to everybody. And that we cannot have education for our children without online learning. They gotta have broadband uh, for everybody or we can be leaving uh, people behind. So you mentioned a new deal when it comes to infrastructure. Uh, I wanna see a fair deal because the new deal, the first new deal of Roosevelt was not fair to the communities that I represent. It took Truman's uh, fair deal. And if you go back and check, I was watching this morning, they were going over how the filibuster has been used over the years. And they talked about the filibuster being used against civil rights. They didn't mention a single case while Roosevelt was president, but they named three of them while Truman was president. These were civil rights cases that Truman brought forward and they were filibustered. None of that happened to Roosevelt. Yeah, I, I like the way you put that because I think it's right. We do need a fair deal when we start thinking about the allocation of broadband services. As part of my book, I had the opportunity to go to the South and places like Marin, Alabama, which I'll talk about in a moment. And you see just the persistent inequalities that actually happened before the pandemic that have gotten worse. And you're so right, Congressman and Commissioner, that without doing something, that we're just making these economic, social, political uh, divides much, much more wider. Congressman, while I have you, I do want to go to the legislation just for people who may not be as familiar. I've read through it and the fact sheet, and I find it interesting, right? Because you're really getting at the four legs of the stool around investment in universal broadband access. But you're presenting, I think, something we haven't heard in a while, which is an office on connectivity and growth, uh, if you want to talk a little bit about that. You're ensuring internet affordability. You're also looking at the promotion of internet adoption, you know, activities that actually inspire people to use it. And then, you know, in, in my mind, when I think about your plan, tell us, you know, why these aspects are important and particularly why we need a, an agency to actually work on this, because then I'll have the commissioner come in and talk about the FCC's role. Yeah, well, for the same reason, we need entities like the FCC. We need to have an entity dealing with getting uh, people all over this country connected to the rest of the world. And what we did with this legislation, we took the legislation proposed by maybe a dozen people. And I remember uh, a way to pay for it. We put that in as a section. Who should oversee it? Put that in as a section. Grace Ming, I remember her bill. Anna Eshu bill. Colin Aldred, VC from down in Texas. We took all the legislation that they've been fooling around with over years and we put it into one big piece of legislation, sat down with Frank Pallone, who chairs the Energy Commerce Committee, and made this a part of his big bill. I think you've seen the LIFT Act. Then we sat down with Peter DeFazio and says, Peter, broadband is as much of an infrastructure issue as a highway. 
We used to call the internet the information highway. So I said to him, we got to treat the information highway the same way we treat the interstate highway. So we wrapped all that. uh, and, And then we said, somebody needs to be in charge to make sure this thing is done in an equitable fashion. So that we won't have, uh, as Mignon said earlier, someone sitting somewhere picking winners and losers, but somebody who is dedicated, an office that's dedicated uh, to connecting uh, everybody in this country to the rest of the world. Yeah, I find that interesting because, uh, Commissioner, you spent a lot of time at the Federal Communications Commission, right, whose job was to ensure equitable access to advanced communications. What do you think about that idea of placing this entity in the Commerce Department and what would be the role of the FCC? Well, one of the things that you both point out very clearly is the fact that agencies are going to be what and who they are. They are political animals. Uh, They are, you know, governmental constructs with their own culture and personalities. And respectfully, if left unchecked, Checked, there will be issues. So to have an an entity, an office, which many people are pushing for, that will help be, I hate to put it this way, be a Geppetto, so to speak, of helping to guide and craft and ensure people are, you know, all of the agencies are moving in um, a a more equitable direction is, I, I believe, a grand idea. I am all for it because you know, one of the things that is just really clear that was a frustration for me, respectfully, and I was a part of the, hopefully, uh, part of the problem and hopefully in some instances, you know, part of the solution is the fact that we have a tendency to execute in silos within and uh, around government, intro within the agencies and inter between, you know, agencies also. And because that is natural and organic, because we were created to maybe bring about certain efficiencies, that is a positive from one point of view, but from an execution as well as a delivery point of view, it has its drawbacks. So if you have a Geppetto, so to speak, if you have an entity that is made you know, crystal clear to everyone in the communications arena that we're moving in the same direction, I think some of the cultural challenges and all of the other deficiencies that would come, that naturally come from being siloed would be addressed. And that to me is the, the, the biggest challenge and the biggest issue. The, the siloization, I might be making that up, but that, that's what Southern people do make up and conflate words. Um, if, you, if we were to, to really be conscious of that, and recognize that we need other partners within government to help flatten that, I I think we'll be well on our way to bridging these divides. No, I I totally agree. And I actually would even suggest to uh, both of you, uh, to your point, we need this interagency collaboration, right? Because much of what we saw during the pandemic is that agencies who had to now migrate their services online, they weren't ready. And that has a lot to do with the silo, siloization. Yes, we're going to claim it. We're going to claim it, right? That right. you're talking about. Um, well, you know, Nicole, you know uh-huh. one of the things that I, I distinctly remember, and this was not so long ago, two instances 
One, when I made mention of attempting to work with the FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, because we could see smart grid coming, I can't tell you the internal looks that I got that were not positive. When we talked about, and it is existing now, bringing a connected health task force within the FCC, I can't tell you how many times I got, well, what does the FCC have to do with health? Newsflash. And I'm not saying I was especially sage, but newsflash, it has everything to do you know, with health and with the delivery uh, of these, of, of telemedicine and the like. And so that's the part of the challenge of having a siloed system that, you know, that executes in and of itself without the benefit of that cross collaboration. This is what we get. But if we, again, have, you know, that Geppetto just moving and, and ensuring everybody's moving in a collaborative direction, we will have less of that and, you know, just more opportunities to, to, to be more educated, uh, healthier, you know, all of the other superlatives that we all want. No, I, I totally agree. And Congressman, I want to come back to you. I mean, you're doing something in this bill that I have to tell you I haven't seen in a long time, which is instead of putting infrastructure as its own bill and affordability and equity, you're sort of combining it all for all, which is basically within your bill. I mean, the question is, you see what you're dealing with in terms of getting the type of bipartisan support that we need on these issues. And now we're seeing, you know, a lot of pushback. Do you anticipate any pushback on the bill? Let's start from, you know, your peers and then let's go to companies. Yeah, there's going to be some pushback. No question about that. And not because of, of anything of a substantive nature. It's the nature of the beast. We are politicals. Everybody's always looking for a political advantage when it comes to anything. And part of this out is always looking for a way to get in. And you do that sometimes by proposing your own stuff. And other times you do that by tearing down other people's stuff. So, you know, we are going to have some pushback. No question about that. Yeah. What about you, Mignot? Do you think on the side of some of the proposals that you've seen at the FCC that this should be a bill do that which you see wholly embraced by the stakeholders, you know, companies, civil society groups, etc.? cetera? I, I, the thing that seems to create the biggest bottlenecks, respectfully, and I, I say this with, a, with an elected official on the, on the um, line, is politics. <laughs> it, it really is. It's everyone trying to gain a certain advantage, trying to make either a headline uh, or, or, or try to get in good graces or whatever it is. It is very rarely what the issue is because uh, behind closed doors, we whisper to each other or get whispered to that I know you're right. However, and it's the however that stops us from doing certain things. It's the however and, and trying to gain political advantages that really stops us from doing certain things. I point to the Lifeline program. You know how much that uh, program yes. is for me. And for those who don't know, it is um, a, a, a federal program that some states have adopted on their own also. It actually has a direct subsidy, a $9.25 a month, which is a month, which is too low, by the way, that would offset back in the, the analog days, that, that voice, and now potentially that broadband connection. It, and I say potentially because the program has not um, been living up to its fullest potential because of politics. But, you know, when, when you look at vehicles that we have, they're there. The need is absolutely there. The vehicles are there. But you have the this you know this political gamesmanship of people just you know wanting to prove a point 
or they're upset with me or and and, and the rest of the uh, country suffers if i walk out of that door being a bit melancholy it's because i really saw it as you know trying to being more against me as an individual or as a person of a different party as opposed to fixing the problems that we have and i hate to, to be the bearer of obvious news but that happens too often. Those in the grass, you know, we get uh, trampled. Yeah, no, I mean, I hope maybe at the end we'll have a little bit of time to talk about what I've been proposing as a researcher, some real uh, universal service reform. And Commissioner, you did do your part as the Commissioner of the People to make sure that people understood that affordability matters, which is so interesting. I think, uh, Congressman, in the bill that you have, you are pushing for the expansion of the emergency broadband benefit, which, as I look at it, is almost sort of suggesting that we need to amplify this affordability concern. I formed this rural broadband broadband task force. I formed that about three years ago. And I invited everybody that had an interest to sit around my conference, in my table in my conference room, to talk about their experiences, what they were doing, what they could bring uh, 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 to the table. Joyce Grace May, she brought her hotspots uh, to the table. Anna Eshoo, her one dig came to the table. So we had the various people doing various things. And so the whole thing was, we got to make this thing affordable. People living in rural America, many of them on fixed income, we've got to make sure that we put stuff in this bill to not just have access, but have affordability as well. So to me, you might as well not have it if people can't afford uh, to take advantage of it. So that's what this was all about. Uh, so I could go through, I think McNerney I mean, took some of his ideas. South Carolina's biggest contribution to this was mapping. We've got, I think we're better than any state in the union with mapping because we were able to take the state legislature at, at my urging, decided to take all of the um, uh, rural co electric co-ops, grant them the authority uh, to use the right of way that they got for electricity to use it for broadband. We, SCE TV, educational television. We've got authorization to use uh, their towers to do the mapping. So we've got good mapping system that's been copied uh, by some other states to include Rhode Island and New York. And what you basically are telling me is that you put together the family reunion plan and then everybody bought their own dish, <laughs> right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. There's a taste for everybody. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's and you right. can't come to this table unless you bring something. That's it. That's it. And there's a lot of families that don't come because they don't have nothing to offer. Okay? That's exactly right. I want to switch in this time just real briefly to two topics that I know are of interest to both of you. One is education and one is healthcare. On the education front, I want to frame it around the concern that the two of you have, which is rural America. There's a woman I met in Marin, Alabama, a, a principal of a K through 12 school. She had tablets through the Obama administration's Connect Ed program. The pandemic hit. The kids couldn't use them at school. She described it as having books without paper. And what was more disheartening from her experience uh, that she shared with me is that these are young kids whose families were highly susceptible to the pandemic, poverty line, you know, just abounded in the community. I want to speak for a moment with both of you, because rural matters, black rural matters, Latino rural matters. It's not just the rural that we think exists, which is white America rural, right? But I'd love to talk to you both about how do we think the lack of access impacts the ability of our students to learn remotely. Part of the friction that you sensed at the FCC 
when I was there was my pushback on the build it and they will come, you know, refrain is just one half of the coin. And to look at until recently, and you were around listening, you know, Nicole, when there was a, a sort of verbal tug of war between me and an, another a colleague about if broadband, you know, it, it, is it a necessity or not? Now, this wasn't 98 or 2008 that I had, you know, had the, you know, these um, uh, challenges or, or this conversation. This was within the last few years. And it amazed me um, that people were like, well, they don't have it at home. Let's go to the library. Or as if every library is in every community, as if people would have the opportunity with the one or two terminals in the, the rural libraries to get on and do their homework. And so you to, for from where I sit, the emphasis early on pre-pandemic was not where it should have been when it um, you know, comes to the availability of broadband at home after the bell rings, after you have to get on that bus or walk down that road, when it comes to the devices that children do not have, when it comes to replacing those devices and the other real, realizations or the realities of being able to afford monthly service. So to me, you know, uh, the, the issue has always been this 180 or 360, depending on, you know, on your math and how you, you, you view the world, of really looking at what the children's needs, how they process and how they learn. It is not about just playing video games when I, when I first got on EFCC and, and got almost bullied down in, in Charleston when we were having a discussion about broadband. It is really about access where there is none. I went to Chattanooga, Tennessee, a few years ago. And they were telling me the difference between the private school and the public school systems where they didn't even have books. They were running copies of, you know, their worksheets because they did not have books. So please don't tell me that even in an analog world, things are equitable. They're not. Broadband and the ability and the possibility of being digitally connected could put the thumb on the scale in another way uh, for those communities. But you need all of these elements, access, affordability, all of these things addressed uh, before we can even move uh, in a direction in terms of closing those existing inequitable divides, particularly in South Carolina when the school system is funded uh, by tax dollars per county seat per region. And all of that, as we know, is not equal either. Yeah. Congressman? Well, I think Mignon is absolutely correct. I, as you were uh, setting this uh, question up, I thought about an experience I had with Serena Williams. Mignon may remember this. Serena was coming to South Carolina for an event, and we worked out a deal with her that she would allow 100 students from Scotch Branch High School. Now, Scotch Branch High School may not mean much to most people, but that's where Brown v. Board of Education started. Yes, yes. It started at Scotch Branch High School in Clarendon County, South Carolina. So she agreed to give 100 of these students tickets to her tennis match and buy about 100 computers to put in their library. Now, I thought I had done something. I went over and talked to the superintendent of the school district, all you know, happy about what I had done for her students. The superintendent looked at me with an empty look, and I, I couldn't figure out what it was. And I asked her, what's the problem? She said, now, what are we going to do with these laptops? I said, well, put them in the library and let them check them out. 
just like they check books out. She said, and then what they're going to do with them? And then it struck me. Only 34% adoption in the whole school district. Yes. So the kids might as well not have, it's like many are talking about the, the books, the laptop wasn't going to do them any good because they were not connected. And so that's, that's the kind of experiences I've had along the way uh, that got me so fired up about this. And I have shared that with the current president way back during the campaign. I've said to him that, uh, and I said to the former president, you may recall, the Democratic leadership met a couple of years ago with 45, and he agreed with me that broadband had to be an integral part of any infrastructure program going forward. And, you know, I thought I had done something there until he never brought forth an infrastructure program. So uh, she's right. This thing is, is complicated in one instance, but the problem is not very complicated. It's a problem of the lack of access and affordability. Let, let me emphasize when the congressman mentioned that figure, that, that connectivity rate in Clarendon County, go to Detroit, Michigan, and look at those students in that district pre-pandemic and see what the connectivity rate is in, in their home. I hate to say it, but closer to 34% than 54% with those Detroit city school. No, and I mean, look, I'm going to tell you both. I'm going to do my part. I've known you both for a very long time. I'm going to do my part because our kids are suffering. They're struggling. And without that access, you know, superintendents are telling me kids are falling off the grid and we know that there are learning losses. I mean, one of the things that is out there, and I think it's a very significant advance, and Commissioner, you know this, is the expansion of the E-rate program to the home. Getting people connected in the home, is that going to solve a lot of these issues? It will solve a lot of these issues, not all of them, but, you know, to have, again, going into, we, and I say we often still, the FCC, though, I've been gone for a couple of years, we put up these rules in place to try to minimize any type of waste, fraud, or abuse, or whatever other, you know, uh, challenges or issues we thought uh, they would have. And then came this pandemic, and the librarians in the school system said, you know, FCC, please institute a waiver so we can have mobile hotspots, so we can have a connectivity at home that's reimbursable, so we can have these issues. Uh, but people have been saying this all the time, that school, when, when, you, when you get on the school bus, if the school bus is not connected, learning should not stop. Virtual learning should not stop. And so the thing is to have 21st century universal service, which E-rate, uh, the schools and libraries program is a part of the universal service program to make it 21st century is, is, is definitely um, the way we should go. And if we have to waiver or we have to make the rules, uh, you know, permanent rule changes, this is what we need. We cannot pretend, tell people to go home and do your home. How do you do your homework <laughs> with what? That's you know, true. with what infrastructure, with what book on your, I still say mimeograph sometimes, on your mimeograph sheet? I mean, how do you expect someone to find the uh, information uh, when there may not be a thesaurus or a dictionary or, or, or in, the, in the home? When a, a connection, a digital connection would be the, their only gateway to en enhance opportunities, but they don't have that gateway because they, they're uh, living either in, in, in a rural district without a connectivity or respectfully on that side of the other side of the tracks in LA where they don't have connection either. 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree on that. And, you know, you are preaching to the choir and then some, okay, when it comes to making sure that we solve this problem, particularly for our nation's students. And we have to start it with universal service reform. So, again, another podcast, another time. I want to be respectful of just a couple more questions for our listeners and then wrap this up. But, Congressman, I'm just going to tell you, just like uh, Mignon is talking about with regards to the E-rate. I mean, you've been talking about telehealth since I've known you. I, I still remember that CBCF panel. We saw people from, I think it was University of South Carolina do stroke care remotely. Um, Absolutely. Same thing happened in the pandemic. A waiver happened and now telehealth is a way of life after 20 so years of fighting to get it into people's homes. Do you see promise as well with telehealth being one of those areas that we're going to keep pushing forward with? Absolutely. I see two things working closely together here. If we get telehealth up and running, we get these community federally qualified community health centers, which is another piece of legislation I got. It's about a $60 billion piece of legislation to put a community health center, a federally qualified community health center within commuting distance of everybody in the country. I think it will work together to improve the quality of life of people all over, not just senior citizens who are immobile, but young children who may need health care and can't get to the hospital that may be a two or three hour uh, drive away. So these are the kinds of things I think will really, really improve uh, the quality of life in rural communities. So telehealth uh, just got to be, or we are never going to do it. I, uh, I often tell the experience of my late wife who suffered with diabetes for almost 30 years. And uh, I remember going to her, uh, I didn't really know it was her doctor at the time. I went to uh, his office and he uh, sat me down at the computer and showed me how he could sit at his desk in Columbia, South Carolina, and diagnose a patient with diabetes 136 miles away down in Beaufort from the computer on his desk. That is the kind of medicine that's got to be available. It will save lives. It will improve the quality of life for people. It's got to be. If we don't do that, we might as well not have this great healthcare system that we have because it's not available to everybody. No, I definitely agree with that. And I think the combination of, again, what the pandemic has done with this perfect storm is just suggesting that everything that we've talked about for decades has actually come true. Listen, uh, Congressman, I got to say this. I mean, you know, I was over here tricking in my seat when you said that uh, Roosevelt's uh, New Deal was good, but wasn't fair. Because, you know, I've been using this concept called Tech New Deal because you got to remember, I wasn't born at that time yet. Okay, (laughs) don't let it be. So please, please give the, the young lady over here a little bit, a little bit difference, right? Hey, 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 Dr. Chenelay, you know, it's so funny. Uh, Mignon is talking mimeograph machine. I start to sit here, girl, you are aging me. If you remember mimeograph machine, that birthday you just had on Monday uh, is a pretty big number. You know, we had a birthday on Monday, uh, on Monday, and it was it was a big yeah. number that I used to call my parents old when when they hit that one. You know, one of the things that's so funny, Nicole, back in October, uh, mid-October of 2018, maybe it's, it's, we're all products of our experiences, I called for a digital civil rights bill. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, so everybody is thinking on the same plane, they're just recognizing that access is not equal, that um, not all communities have the tools and services needed, but they must. And it will not happen with some type of, without an edict or a mandate or, or, or being intentional about closing these divides. You know, we're, we're speaking among the converted here, 
but if uh, policymakers from the hyper-local level to the federal level are not in line with the principles that, in which we speak, then we will be on this line in, in a year and in 10 years with the same refrain. And that would be a shame with all of the tools and services we do have. Yeah, no, and I mean, that's why, I mean, in all honesty, I named it a tech new deal because I think that it's sort of this combination of post-it notes that need to be framed, right? Because we do have an infrastructure issue. We have an affordability and adoption issue. But guess what? Technology has changed the way we live, we learn, we earn, we love. And we're going to have to embrace the fact that it's part of our economic recovery. We know that we need folks who have these skills, right, congressmen, to have to, we got to be less than passive consumers and producers of this new economy. And, and that's why I named it that, congressman. I'm just telling you, you know, it's out there because I, oh, I'm going to put good. it up. Fair tech new deal, okay? You go ahead and make it the new deal. I'm gonna make it fair. <laughs> then we'll work together on that. You know, <laughs> I would be uh, remiss because I've known you both for many years and I carry that honor very humbly. But I know that there are some folks saying, you got the two of them together. Let's just see how well they really know each other. So I want to just close out with just a couple of questions and then I'll just wrap up this conversation. I, you know, Congressman, you know how your daughter is. So I, I got some questions just to make sure because she did celebrate a birthday. I'm yeah. going to ask a couple questions and just see how she responds to make sure y'all are still, you know, engaging on the same level in <laughs> this pandemic. OK. okay. Uh, what is the commissioner's favorite food? He has no oh. idea. <laughs> you, you, you got that right. <laughs> uh, commissioner, you know what your daddy's favorite food is? No, but I can tell you his favorite, you know, ice cream uh, used to be a uh, butter pecan. Is it still that? Yeah, still butter pecan. <laughs> uh, the last great movie your dad watched. I can't answer that either because he's, have you been to the movie in the last 15 years? No. <laughs> I, I remember him seeing, and I was shocked about this. I think he went to see, was it Head of State? What was Eddie Murphy's movie? And he said that was funny. Was it called Head of State? When Eddie Murphy no. played a president or something? That's the no. last movie I remember oh, yeah, him talking yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, Nicole doesn't even know, but I, I think that's what it was called. Yeah, no, I forgot. No, there's something gentleman. Um, oh, distinguished gentleman? Distinguished gentleman. Okay. Yeah. That's the that last movie I remember him talking about, and you know how long that's that, been. That okay, okay. Well, I'm going to try one more. I'm going to try one more. What's the favorite part of the meat, favorite meat that dad likes to barbecue? What barbecue? You were pretending that dad barbecues. I didn't even this question. You did not even do your homework. Barbecue. If, if we have a barbecue grill anywhere, someone else is over that, and he'll tell you plain. So that's have you ever be- barbecued in your life, James Clyburn? Um, no, I fried fish. <laughs> So it's a fish. It's a yeah. fish fry. I meant to say the fish fry. Yeah, What's the favorite fish that, that dad likes to fry? Uh, spot. Spot. Yep. <laughs> well, I got you on one question. And Congressman, I cannot tell you what you have taken on as a Herculean task to not only bring broadband to all, but to make sure that all of our nation becomes one community and not two tales of two conversations happening at the same time. And so I appreciate you for that because without your leadership, we would not be having conversations around broadband, voting rights, and other issues that have polarized this country over the last few years. You've stepped in and we appreciate that as well. And I appreciate both of you. Uh huh. Thank you very much for having us. And let me correct the record on, on, on one thing. I did rent out a theater here in Columbia 
and That's invited right. people uh, to see Selma. That's uh, right. But just to sure go is. to a commercial movie, movie, it's been 25 years. Oh, wow. Well, it's been a long time for some of us with COVID, too. So I think most of us haven't seen a movie in a long time. That was kind of an unfair question, but I'm glad you remembered. (laughs) I had to tell you what the name of the movie was. Mignon, you may remember we were down on Hilton Head and got snowed in for Christmas, and it was called Terms of Endearment. You went to see You must have taken your wife too. That's funny. Because <laughs> you would not go there on your own. <laughs> no, she, she made me go. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I want to thank Congressman Clyburn and Commissioner Clyburn, the two C's, for lending me their time for the important conversation. Our goal is to close the digital divide, as you all heard, and get it right this time. Our sta- students, our families and our country are depending on us to get it right once and for all. And we'll be looking into, you know, how this conversation pans out. I appreciate you both for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. My pleasure. And for all of you who are listening, this has been another episode of Tech Tank, where conversations around tech and telecom are done in palatable bites, not bits. Please follow this and other issues on our Tech Tank newsletter, which offers fresh content daily. And as I mentioned, this is the second of three podcasts around uh, this proposed Fair Tech New Deal. And the next one that we will talk about will be around the broadband workforce. I'm Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, Director of Brookings Center for Technology Innovation. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.